0: Growing up in a Pentecostal church, it wasn't all that unusual to have our services interrupted. Most of them were divine and wonderful, but some of them were odd. You like the grace and the polish that I just put on that, right? Yet I don't think I can ever relate to a moment like this the physicality of the whip, the sound of the coins falling all over the stone floor, and the sound of tables being kicked over. It may have happened metaphorically on more than one occasion in church, but there's a big difference between imagining what that's like in a figurative sense and really hearing it, really seeing it. This is a passage that causes some cognitive dissonance for people. Because this text, this story presents a side of Jesus that's a little bit different in our mind from the Jesus who says, suffer the little children to come unto me. This Jesus is a little bit different than the Jesus who's willing to be interrupted and go to somebody's house and pray for their sick child. I wanna make it clear up front what Jesus is not doing in this story that we've heard this morning. Jesus is not using violence to gain control of a, over a situation that he previously didn't have. When human men and women use violence, an att- it's an attempt to assert our will and to gain control in a situation that is out of our control And Jesus does not have this need. Jesus does not have this lack. He doesn't have this pressing urgency to get control of an out-of-control situation. Jesus' emotions are not so worked up that he cannot help himself. This is not a tantrum. This is not a show of power. As a matter of fact, This is an act that ultimately will be part of his undoing. If you remember, when Jesus is brought on trial before Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin, they bring this story up, don't they? No. This is altogether different. This is the story of Jesus judging a system. This is the story of David's rightful heir, the true king of Israel, walking into the temple of the fake king of Israel, his name was Herod, and judging a system. Many of you have probably heard sermons preached out of this text that are focused on money, that are focused on money changers, that are focused on the coinage, that are somehow I've even heard people say you shouldn't sell books in church because of this story. You shouldn't sell products to people in church because of this story. And I, I, I've even heard more elaborate discussions that have some weight that talk about the ways in which money changers would have been manipulating and taking advantage of outsiders who've come from out of town to worship at the Passover. And if it, any of you have ever traveled abroad and changed money, you know it costs money to change money, right? who? Sometimes that's quite quite. A, we've all felt that scam, and so there's been talk about the fact that this is a, 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 using worship as an opportunity to prey on people financially. And while there's certainly a strong argument and and a great discussion to be had on those points, I don't think that is ultimately. Please hear what I'm saying. I don't think it's ultimately where Jesus is headed. I don't think that's the big problem, materialism, the ways in which Gentiles would have been pushed aside. I think something deeper, something bigger, something more historic is at work here. We have to remember, this city, Jerusalem, is the epicenter of Jewish life. And this temple, this site, is the locus of God's presence. We just sang, Emmanuel, God with us. And I think sometimes that sort of language just flows over our lips so effortlessly. God is with us. You are here. You are holy. We're standing in your glory. I love the lyric, but I think the reality is we'd probably all be on our faces, not standing. Our knees would buckle, would they not? Remember the story in the garden when they come to arrest Jesus? And he says, I am he, and they all get slain in the spirit. That's Pentecostal talk. They all fell down on their backs, it says in the gospel. <laughs> That's how we all did. <laughs> like we... This idea that we're in the presence of God, we have to be careful, friends. Don't you think? I mean, the presence that we so enjoy, I think it's a sort of presence that only one person out of a nation would ever experience, and that once a year a high priest going into the Holy of Holies, and we do it week in and week out. Jesus is is in this most holy place at this most holy time, and he does this most outrageous act, and I guarantee you it is not a tantrum, and it is not sheer violence. It is not a show. It is not trying to get attention to himself in that carnal sense. Jesus is judging a system in history, in time and space. Jesus is signifying that that which the prophets had foretold is coming to bear on this nation. It's interesting. I looked like any good student would. Where are other places in the Bible where a whip shows up? I decided to put a title on this sermon, Whipped and Undone. Whipped and Undone. Where does a whip show up? Aside from an obscure proverb that talks about a whip being for the back of fools, A whip shows up one time in the Old Testament, and it's in Isaiah 10. And the only time a whip shows up in the Old Testament in this sense is Isaiah saying that God would wield a whip against Assyria. The whip is in God's hands as far as the prophet is concerned, and it's judging the exile this time period when Israel was dragged out of her nation and brought to foreign lands, and Assyria was the first captor that showed up in the 8th century to do this. What's interesting is that the exile never truly ended. When Jesus stands in the temple, he's standing in the temple that was built by Herod under the watchful eye of Rome. He's standing in a temple that is being administrated by high priests, a Sanhedrin, who serve at the pleasure of Rome in order to keep the peace. They are, as one theologian called them, illegal guardians of the Jewish faith. They're not pure. If anything, they are continuing the exile because they're puppets of an empire that rules the land. It's almost like saying, well, you're home, you're back in Israel, so the exile's over, but you're not free. These priests, this system, this temple was all designed to keep enslaved people unaware of the fact that they were enslaved. Isn't it ironic? John says that Jesus made a whip. The language is strange in the original Greek. Did he make it? Did he grab it? Did he have it? It would have been really wild to watch Jesus just make a whip, just looking at everybody like, "Eh, what do you think I'm doing? (laughs) It's a little bit weird, uh, to say the least. But just one thought to maybe throw in as an aside here when we go home. hopefully we'll think about this after this moment. Isn't it ironic at the very least that the whip, he probably got it from the people who were selling the animals. In other words, the very instrument that was used to manage the animals, Jesus used to drive the animals out. And I think there's something we should consider in our lives, and that is what if God takes the very things in our lives that we use to assert control? And Jesus will take those very things to destabilize us for his purpose. Needless to say, the money changers, tables overturned, sellers of cattle, oxen. John is the only one who includes them. This is a story that shows up in all four Gospels, and John sees fit to include the cattle. Now what's interesting about this is the cattle being sold, the doves being sold. Augustine has this wonderful line where he says, uh, the, the synoptic gospels talk about sellers of doves. And a dove is a type of who? The Holy Spirit. So Augustine says this thing, he says, the Holy Spirit is not for sale. Hello. This is something where we start to get into this weird, unrelatable concept of animal sacrifices, right? I am guessing has anybody ever offered an animal as a sacrifice? Good. Okay, I was hoping we wouldn't get any hands raised. (laughs) Brent and Janice are here to speak with you afterwards if that was the case. So we have these animals who are coming into the temple, being brought into the temple for sacrifice. We have to give ourselves a little bit of context for this. And Just bear with me, because I know we have a little bit of history and a little bit of Bible to, to bear up under. Our Old Testament reading for today is from Exodus 20, which is famous for the Ten Commandments. So in Exodus 20, we have God giving of the commandments, which is really establishing a covenantal life for Israel. He's saying, you are my people, you are chosen, you are called. But this is what it looks like to live in that covenant. You don't have other gods. This day of the week is holy for you. You treat your parents this way. You don't kill. You don't lie. You don't steal. You don't covet. You don't commit adultery. This is what it looks like to live a covenantal life. And right after that in Exodus 25, he comes to Moses and he gives, them, he gives Moses architectural plans to build the tabernacle. And in the eighth verse of that 25th chapter of Exodus, God says this. I want you to build a tabernacle Listen to this phrase, that I may dwell with them. God coming to us, what we sang about this morning. So we have this covenantal life, and now we have this promised presence among us. And then we get to everybody's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus, right? The whole balance of Exodus is basically the working out of this tabernacle construction and then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, for those of you that like do the Bible reading plans, that was like the worst, right? You're like checking off the boxes. You're like, Exodus 38 through 40. Great. Oh, Leviticus 1. And it's guilt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings and scapegoats and a weird goat with a name that we can't pronounce who goes into the woods. All of this stuff is happening in Leviticus, and we're like, what is going on? Right? But Leviticus is the basis for the animals being in this temple that Jesus is driving out with a whip. The reason the animals are there is because of Leviticus. And why is Leviticus in our Bible? Leviticus is the book of grace. You're all like, yeah, obviously. (laughs) Right? Well, think about it for a moment. God says, okay, here are these 10 commandments. And here's my presence. How long does it take you to break the Ten Commandments? The morning, the afternoon, a couple days if you're in Lent, right? You're holy. Okay? Some of you are breaking the commandments while I'm preaching. Okay? But here's what we know. This now creates a problem. Because we have God's divine laws and God's divine decree decree, and we have God's promised presence, but we're not able to live in such a way as to maintain this good arrangement we have in Exodus. We are falling short, and so Leviticus is God providing a way to restore us as much as we need restoration. God providing a way for us to stay connected despite ourselves. That's what the book of Leviticus is about, in some meaningful way way the problem is we often think that God tried the animals and the animals didn't really work out too well so he's like Jesus I'm sorry I told them spotless sheep it didn't work you know like there's this we have to talk meeting right you hate that when somebody's like we have to talk you're like oh no The father says to the son, Jesus, we we have to talk. Jesus is like, what? What did I do? You know that thing we set up in Leviticus? It is not working at all. I think you're going to have to just get killed. (laughs) (sighs) Awkward moment, right? Are you glad to know this morning, are you encouraged deep in your soul to know that that is exactly not what happened Jesus was not plan B. He was slain from the foundations of the world. Jesus is not plan B. He didn't go to the cross because everything else that they had been trying failed. That's not why he went to the cross. This is so important because I think it starts tugging at and tearing at some of the bad ideas we've all been given over the course of our lives. God knew from the moment he gave the instructions in Leviticus, God knew the animal thing would not work. God knew the Torah, the law, as wonderful as it is, and this is a complex subject that I I don't want to, don't misunderstand me to be oversimplifying this, but Hebrews does talk about a better covenant, does it not? Jeremiah talks about a new covenant that's coming. Why? Because God knew from the beginning that this system, this law, these sacrifices were not sufficient to remove sin or to change our hearts. So why have them at all is the question. Any animal lovers in the room want to know, why are we killing all of these animals? Fleming Rutledge, Anglican theologian, she has an amazing book on the crucifixion. And her point, she says that it's the inefficacy, fancy $10 word there, inefficiency, lack of ability, of the animal sacrifices that would reveal the limits of our human efforts. We have to know in our souls for ourselves that we can't fix us. (laughs) We have to know deep in the depth of who we are, we cannot fix ourselves. Even with Good God instructions. And, and she goes on to say that he wanted to prepare humanity, his people. He wanted to prepare them for the sacrifice that would not fail. Somebody should have said amen right there. I mean, I know she's Anglican, but we can shout in the middle of her quote. It's okay. The sacrifice that would not fail. I want to, come on, stomp my foot and shout. Namely, look at this, the self-offering of the Son. This rocked my world, so if I get excited and I throw over the podium, I'm doing what Jesus would have done, just I'm excited. The sacrifice of Christ was not God's reaction to human sin. (laughs) Just please, just stop at the commas with me and don't keep reading. Just stay in the moment. Jesus is not sacrificed because God flips out and goes, oh, I can't believe these people. I do all this for them and they still act like jerks. That's it. I'm killing you. The sacrifice of Christ was not God's reaction to human sin, but an inherent, he can't help himself, an original movement within God's very being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is the very nature of God to offer God's self in a sacrificial way. Every animal that ever died never died in vain. They were preparing the world, humanity, the people of God. They were preparing you. Look at this awful death. You have to do it, but it's not going to fix you. But there's one coming who is going to fix you. There is one coming, and when he goes to the cross, you're going to see God. The cross is the apex of God's revelation of himself. In an empty tomb, you will see God's power. But on a bloody cross, you will see God's love. Zeus has power. Ra has power. God is love. You will see it on Good Friday. And if it works, it's good work in you, it will break you on Good Friday. This is not plan B, friends. This is a holy setup from the beginning. What's odd is the ways in which God spoke through the prophets during the exile to shift Israel's consciousness away from killing animals. I'm guessing the exile is an event that would have gotten all of Israel's attention, right? Okay, we're dragged off in chains. It's kind of like, you ever been in a moment where you're sick in bed or in a hospital? Like, God, I said I wanted more time with you. Here we go, right? You're dragged off into exile, you watch this temple that you're convinced is not only God's house, it's the master bedroom, and it is ransacked, and it is desecrated by Gentiles who should have been weak in the face of Yahweh. And yet the prophets speak to us about this shifting position that God has. In other words, that the sacrifices and the rituals and the law were not able ultimately to justify Israel. Think about this. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. God is speaking. What does he say? What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats but he asked for them. Hello? Jeremiah chapter six, verse 20. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor are your sacrifices pleasing to me. Hosea chapter six. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather Than burnt offerings. How do we handle this when God seems to be speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Leviticus. He gives us chapter after chapter of instructions on how to bring these animals to deal with sin. How to kill them. What animals you're allowed to use in a sacrifice and what ones you're not allowed to use. And now he says he doesn't want them. They're not pleasing. He's not interested. Stop bringing them. How much of our preaching and our teaching and our Bible reading has indoctrinated us to believe that God Never changes in the worst sort of concrete, stagnant, lifeless way. In other words, we have been given a domesticated, cooperative, predictable God that allows our preachers to be filled with certainty. But we have to ask ourselves, What is God thinking? Is he capricious? Is he finicky? Is he that person who told you when you first got married, he liked your meatloaf, and now 12 years in, you realize he doesn't like your meatloaf? (laughs) The fact is, the God of Scripture, please hear what I'm about to say, the God of Scripture, not of our pulpits, Not of the books on our shelves in the Christian bookstore, but the God of Scripture is a threat. And He is a threat to the stability that religion offers. He is a threat to the stability that our carnal souls crave. He's a threat to that. He cannot be figured out, He cannot be thoroughly understood cannot be wrapped up and packaged with a bow on top and say, this is God. Because as soon as we say that, he comes in and he takes the whip out of our hands and destroys the very system we were using. Religion tends toward, it has a proclivity for the status quo rather than the action of God. Let me say that again. Religion has an appetite for the status quo rather than the action of God. Friends, Israel, as we see it in John 2, Israel was more content and more interested following the clear instructions of Moses rather than wrestling with the vague and quite unresolved oracles of Isaiah. Let me just stay in Leviticus where I know if I bring this kind of animal, God will be happy. I don't want to think about Isaiah who said God doesn't want that animal anymore. I don't want to think about Hosea who said I want your love and not your sacrifice. I don't want to think about that. Just give me what I know. This is what Jesus is judging in the temple. This is more important than money changers ripping people off. Because what this is, is this is an obstruction. This is a blockage. This is a hurdle blocking the people of God from the essence and the life of God. It's not a Jewish issue. It's a human issue. We all enjoy illusions of control. We all like the whip when it's in our hand. Right? When we can make the cattle go where they're supposed to go. When Jesus takes the whip out of our hand, heaven help us. But he does it because he is the fulfillment of all religion. Everything that religion wants to accomplish is to pointing to the reality that is available in Christ. Theodoret, one of our fathers in the church, destroy this temple, Jesus says, which is greater than the Jewish one. For the Jewish one held the law, but the former, Jesus' body, held the lawgiver. The latter had the letter that kills, but the former had the life-giving spirit. The point Jesus is making is, I am the Lamb of God that John the Baptist was talking about. I'm that one. His claim here, they don't kill him over the money changers. They kill him because he said he was the temple. Isn't it interesting to watch the sequence of events in the Gospels? John chapter 2 begins with what? The wedding feast at Cana. What's happening there? They run out of wine. Jesus' first miracle takes place. My father's sermon title was great on this. He said, Jesus' first miracle was keep the party going, right? But here's what a little fine detail that we lose in that story is that is the way Jesus kept the party going was this wedding is happening just before Passover, just before our text. And what does he do? He grabs the ritual pots for ritual cleansing. And he defiles them. This is a problem. We're all talking about water into wine, and while I grew up, it was like grape juice, wasn't wine, but. Jesus said, You're not going to need these ritual pots to cleanse you anymore. Let's use them to make wine. Another sermon for talking about how the wine really becomes the blood of Jesus. <sighs> John chapter 3, what happens? The leader from this temple shows up to Jesus at night. And what does Jesus say? He says, You've got to go back and start all over again. This is not right. We've got to hit reset. You have to be born again. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. You must be born. That was your chance. You must be born. Thank you. Okay. How about this one? John 4, Jesus shows up in a Samaritan village and goes to a well, finds a woman there. Go get your husband. What does it end up with? She quickly changes the subject to talk about church. That will happen in the gathering space after the service. How are you doing? Well, praise the Lord. Uh, anyway, that's a bad joke. And, um, <laughs> what does she want to talk about? What mountain are we supposed to worship on? This mountain, Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion? And what does Jesus say? The Lord is, God is looking for worshipers who will worship him not in a location, but in a way. Not on this mountain or that man, mountain, but we'll worship him in spirit and in truth. Here's what happens in John 4. The temple goes to Samaria. Let me say that again. In John 4, the lamb from John 1 is also the temple, and he shows up in Samaria, and he says, the location thing has come to an end. After he had spoken with the temple leader and said, you have to start all over again because what you're doing is not going to work anymore. Jesus is judging a system, this temple that they were worshiping in was pointing to Jesus' body. But friends, you are the body of Christ. You see, the temple was David's idea, wasn't it? If we go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we discover that the temple was David's idea and God allowed it. The tabernacle was God's idea and he initiated it. God has always been a mobile kind of guy. Hello? He's always preferred tents to temples. Think about this from Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. Stephen says, it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? God is on the move, friends. It's the reason why in the Ezekiel chapter one, that first chapter, the ark has become a chariot. Remember that whole wheel within a wheel thing? The ark has become the chariot. The place of God's presence is on the move. And this room today, as I look in every section, I see the movement of God Because I'm looking at his temple right now. You are the bearers of presence, and you are going to move out of this place throughout Tulsa and the surrounding region. And you are going to be bearers of presence, not as Levites who would bear an ark on their shoulders, but as temples who would be tabernacling the presence of Most High God in your very soul. As long as you have the old temple and the old system and the old sacrifices, this is being blocked. Zeal for your house has consumed me. You remember Jesus says that. Zeal for your house. Please note, I think it's worth looking at the difference between house and temple language. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is always talking about The house. Jesus is the temple. He's talking about the house. In John chapter 8, he talks about the son will remain in the house. In John 14, he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. He's talking about this house because the temple language, this old system is not sufficient for what is prophetically destined to be. And it is you. Jesus was zealous for you, collectively, as a body, as his body. Remember, he said, if you tear this temple down, I will raise it up in three days. And by the temple, he was referring to his body. And Paul would go on to extrapolate and say, you are the body of Christ. He was zealous for us. He was consumed with zeal for this reality. He does not stand in Herod's temple as a political zealot. He stands there as the son of David, as the good shepherd of Israel. He stands there in authority. Here's the problem with everything that I'm saying. In the season of Lent, there's a heightened awareness in the church of our sinfulness, of the ways in which we fall short. There's something in our carnal nature that pushes back against this. It's seen as negativity. In our culture, we often have concerns of self esteem and things like that. But here's the reality. The church has never been pure. The church has never been pure. And that matters because the church is his body and is the locus. It is the location. It is the place of God's presence. And we should not get to the end of this story. Coins tinkling on the floor, dust in the air from tables being kicked over and bleeding and mooing and huffing as animals are whipped. We shouldn't get to the end of this story and say, well, thank you, Jesus, that you did that in the temple. And then think somehow we're going to walk out of here this morning unscathed. At some point, I think we have to read stories like this and say, where are we? I mean, do we sit back as a third-party observer and say, oh, those lousy priests in the temple, they didn't get it. Man, glad I read Isaiah better than them. (laughs) Right? We don't want to be those people. That's not the spirit of Jesus. We don't want to sit back and in some sort of borderline anti-Semitism and be like, those Jews, huh, wow, so smug. Circumcision and the Ten Commandments, woohoo! Can't do that. We have to ask ourselves a question. If Jesus had to cleanse the temple 2,000 years ago, does he have to cleanse the temple today? Knowing what I said at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus does not cleanse the temple in anger. He doesn't cleanse the temple in manipulation. He's not cleansing the temple to try to get control of something that's out of his reach. He cleanses the temple. He takes the whip because he is undone. New Living Translation, when they translate that 17th verse where. It reads, "Zeal for your house is consuming." There's a footnote in there. It says, "Concern for your house has been my undoing." In other words, Jesus paraphrase, and I don't think I'm far off here he says, "I'm so passionate for this, it's going to kill me." That's what he's saying. "I'm so passionate for my glory to be in my people and not in a building. I'm so passionate. For people to see the Father through me on the cross. I'm so passionate to bring all of this work to fulfillment. It is going to kill me. Of course, he's quoting David from Psalm 69 when he says it. We have to understand it's in that same passion, it's in that same love, and it's in that same spirit that Jesus comes to us consistently. And like we read in the Song of Songs, the bride, we in our comfortable chamber, he comes and he knocks on the door. What, is that, what other verse does that sound like? I stand at the door and I knock. Seven letters written to seven churches who clearly were not pure. Hello? Hello? The church has never been pure. It's why Jesus always comes knocking. He's always knocking on the door, listen, not of our building, but of our hearts. Why? Because that's his spot. The temple aristocrats were so angered by Jesus' indictment that they did destroy his temple problem is they remained in their sin, and they never realized what was being offered. Bonhoeffer says it this way. He says, renunciation of its claims to purity leads the church back into its solidarity with the sinful world. Through courageous acknowledgement of its being world, that's right, that's that, of its being world, the church is perfectly free from the world to become Christian. My prayer this morning is that we would welcome Jesus into our hearts. Again, I know that sounds like Sunday school, but there's something to it in this context. We would welcome Jesus into our hearts, even though he's standing there with a whip in his hand. And that he's come to drive out in this Lenten season anything that would hinder God's glory from being revealed in us. Our pride, our fear, our anxiety, our prejudice, our materialism, our personality, whatever it is that's going to hinder the glory of God from being revealed through us. The freedom that is God. He stands at the door of our hearts this morning. And my prayer also is that like Christ, we would be undone with zeal for his house, for his family, for his church, for his dwelling place. Let's pray this morning.